sing as we consider our sin, that we can always fall on you when temptation comes our way, when we don't feel like we can stand, we fall back on you. Lord, we do need you every hour. We need you now as we consider your word to stir our hearts up, to give us strength to repent where it needs to be and be convicted where we need to be convicted and learn what we need to learn. We need you this week as we go into our workplace, as we go into our homes. We need you in all those moments. Would you help us and keep teaching us how dependent we should be on you? We'll keep doing this, Lord. We'll keep proclaiming your death until you return. May we be faithful to do that. And now may we be faithful to attend to your words in your your word in the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that I don't forget it later, which which I've never done in my life, it's not good to lie at the start of a sermon, right? Um, That we will take a benevolence offering at the end uh, of the service. So the ushers at the door with that second offering, that's for needs in this community. Uh, It could be for doctor's bills, you know, helping someone pay rent. Um, It could be, um, part of it goes to help the food pantry every time we give like this. So that's the Three Lakes Food Pantry we also support. So uh, consider giving as you walk out as a special additional gift, okay? All right. Um, it was, uh, boy, 2012. I was in Austin, Texas. And, uh, you know, they say that, that, that Austin has that slogan, Keep Austin Weird. Have you heard that before? Keep Austin Weird. Well, I didn't encounter many weird things. Maybe I didn't look in the right places, you know. I mean, I was actually there for mission stuff with, with the youth group. So maybe I wasn't there for that reason. But maybe the weirdest thing I did, though, was very interesting. Any of you been to the Congress Avenue Bridge when the bats come out in the evening during the summer? Any, have you been there for that? I, I see. Wedding hands, you've been there. You're the only ones. All right, you get the award. A prize after church. Um, it, it's amazing. I mean, you, you, like, all these people every night at dusk, gather together, and, 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 you're, and there's this huge bridge, and, and there's like a million and a half bats that come flying from under the bridge every night. And, and they eat, I think they say they eat between ten and 20,000 pounds of insects, you know. So it's really good they're there, you know. Like, praise God for the bats, because they're eating all this junk, you know. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, you, everybody just kind of, they're sitting in long chairs, they're setting up, and you're all just staring at the bridge, you know. I don't, and they don't stare at bridges, but you do for this. And then, then the first ones start coming out. And then they all start coming out. And it's just, it's just incredible. And it's, it's very weird, right? It's weird. Um, well, that was kind of my inspiration for the title of the sermon today, uh, Keep Christianity Weird, you know? And, and so I just want to ask a question, you know? Are, are you okay being thought of as weird, as a little too extreme? And, and is there... Is there something in Christianity where you can go over the line? I think we've all met people where we'd say, yeah, they're a believer, but they're a little weird. You know, and, and hopefully you don't say that too much because that's probably gossip, right? You know, but, but you've thought it. Like, their views, or the way they do stuff, 
it's a little, like, I've met weird Christians. You know, I worked at a Christian bookstore for three or four years, and I had some weird people come in there, you know? One guy was like, one person decided we were like a bad bookstore, like he was anti-Christian. He like was standing outside like putting a curse on us because he had the true faith, you know? That was weird. Another guy came in one time and he wanted to bless the bookstore, so he laid on the ground in the bookstore, you know? And, and I thought, you know, I guess if he was an Old Testament prophet, that's what they did, you know? They laid down and they did different things, you know? But I didn't know what to do with that, you know? Like, it's just, it's just a little different. Now, uh, I just want to come at this from the, from the perspective of, like, what, what do you think about the strangeness of Christianity? And I think that's exactly what Paul has to contend with during his trial before Festus. Actually, it's not even a trial anymore. It's just him sharing before Festus and King Agrippa. Would you turn to Acts 26? Acts chapter 26. Where we left off last week, and some people gave me a hard time afterwards, like, you left us on a cliffhanger. Well, a lot of you are back, so this is good, right? And if you're not, you can listen to it online, and that'll be good. Someone said, I won't be here next week, but I'm going to listen. Last week we saw that that Festus is kind of like the first week on the job, and he was going to finally settle the Paul question. Like, we're going to get this thing figured out. Felix, my predecessor, he, he like, kept Paul in, 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 in like, you know, under lock and key for, like, two years. But I'm going to come in here, and I'm going to figure this thing out. So he gets in here, and then he realizes this is not so easy. Because Paul's done nothing deserving of death, and yet the Jewish people want him dead. And, and, they're, and they're giving these false accusations. Paul defiled the temple, which he didn't do at all. He was actually ceremonially clean when he was in the temple. Like, the very opposite of defilement. And so... Paul appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen and you have the right to appeal to the highest court, to Caesar himself. That would be uh, Emperor Nero. <clears throat> and so uh, Festus says, okay, you're going to go to Caesar. Whew. And then he thought to himself, but that means I've got to send a charge with the prisoner and I don't know what to charge him with. And that created a huge new problem for Festus. Now King Agrippa, that's Herod Agrippa, we talked about this last week, he came to visit and Festus is like, finally, you know, like, I, I can consult with another politician to see what in the world I'm going to do. King Agrippa II, I need your help. And so this is like Agrippa's hearing of Paul. And as we said last week, all high-ranking, all these high-ranking officials are there. And Paul has, Paul the captive has a captive audience. And now he's going to share would you uh, now? Now, this is the third time we've looked at Paul's life story, Paul's conversion, I should say, this summer. You ever been around someone that tells stories multiple times, and 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 they just tell the story, and you're thinking, I've heard this five times, you know? And, and you want to say something, but you don't, you know? And you just kind of endure the story, and, and you try to sound interested. And when they share like the surprise ending of the story you've heard five times, you go, Oh, you know. <laughs> That is so deceptive of you, you know? I never do that. Okay, second time I've lied today, okay? Hopefully the last time, hopefully the last time. But you know what happens. And Paul's story is shared three times in Acts, and everyone has a little bit of a different nuance, you know? The first time around, Paul's story is, is told, and, and it's kind of like Paul the persecutor becomes Paul 
the church guy. You know, like there's an emphasis there with that. The second time Paul tells the story, it's to an angry mob that wants to beat him to death. And guess what he does there? He tries to emphasize that he is in line with Judaism. Judaism leads to Jesus. The Jewish faith naturally leads to Jesus. And then you have this one before Agrippa. Agrippa is a Jewish guy, a Jewish king. So Paul is going to speak to him about his testimony. Okay, here we are. Chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand. And you can hear the chains kind of making their noise as he motions with his hand. And he begins a defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And I think I'd beg you to listen patiently too, if you've heard this two other times. (laughs) The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they were willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, which is pretty bright at noon actually, blazing all around me and my companions. We fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and all Judea and then the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets of Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people, to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Let's stop right there, just for, just for a few minutes. 
Can we come to grips with the reality that people, if you believe that a man rose from the dead, people are going to think you're crazy? And that as long as you can just have a lukewarm faith that doesn't cause waves, that isn't too showy, that that makes not many distinctions morally, you can blend right in. And nobody will think you're crazy. But if you live your faith, talk about your faith, believe a guy rose from the dead, people might think you're insane. Why would you do that? Why would you believe that? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, some of you heard, you know, the research group Barna. Um, <clears throat> there goes my voice. He, uh, he did a, I, I just read a great uh, article by him. Maybe it's not great, but it's very interesting, I should say. And he did a study, and, and he was interviewing uh, believers and non-believers, just, just different adults in America, and trying to come up with, like, a list of, like, what behaviors do you see as extreme from other religious groups? Christians, Muslims, what do you view as extreme in, in, their, in, in their beliefs? And what he found was over half the adults tend to view religious people as extreme, extremists. Like you've gone too far, maybe dangerously far. With your, He found that ha- almost half of the adults that they surveyed thought religious people go too far. It's too extreme. There's nothing new under the sun. It's exactly what Festus thought. This is way too much. Can I just show you for a second the behaviors that Barna categorized as as people thinking were too extreme? I want to show them to you. Okay. Uh, Category one is extremism. Uh, It's 80% of U.S. adults. So in other words... 80% 80% of the people they surveyed, 80%, 8 out of 10 said, this was too much. Okay? Uh, use religion to justify violence. And again, a lot of these we would agree with, like that's way too much. Uh, refuse standard medical care for their children. Refuse to serve someone because a customer's lifestyle conf- conflicts with their beliefs. There, there's a debate amongst the church right now. Do you serve somebody in certain circumstances? And 80% say that's too far. That's too extreme. And of course we would, I think it's interesting that I was playing this message on a weekend where there is violence in our country over race, you know, and whatever, whatever we use to justify that, which is not right. Um, that's category one. That's the top category. Category two. We're going to start to get into some more interesting waters here, okay? Um, category two is 50 to 79% of people responded that this was way too far, this is way too extreme, maybe even dangerously extreme, uh, demonstrate outside an organization they c- consider immoral. Preach a religious message in a public place. Does this count? Okay. Um, attempt to convert others to their faith. Now notice that one. You sharing your faith, 50 to 79% of people, that's a lot of people would say, that is dangerously extreme. You've gone way too far try to convert me to the faith. I say that on the weekend before Get Your Feet with Sunday. This is so smart, right? Okay. Um, uh, what else can I say here? Uh, where am I at? Teaching their children that sexual relationships between people of the same sex is morally wrong. Uh, n- next line. Uh, distribute religious material door to door. I'm sure they're thinking of the JWs. 
Most of us don't do that anymore, really. Um, pray out loud in public for a stranger. You ever done that or had that happen? I was just part of one recently, you know. So, uh, I mean, we, we kind of do this. Like, I, I offer prayer. I was sitting by a lady in the airport, and, I was, and she was crying. And I was like, what are you crying about? And she told me, and so I prayed. You know, I asked her if I could pray for her, you know. Um, and then, of course, uh, believe that sexual relations between people of the same sex are morally wrong. That's different from the first one. The first one was teach your children that. And this one is be- you just believe that in general. And protest government policies that conflict with their religion. You've gone way too far. Way too far, people think. Uh, next category. Category three. Now, this is lower. This is less than half. 20% to 49%. Now, you're getting to a smaller group of people, but they still think this is too far. You've gone too far on this. And the first one is pray in special language, often called speaking in tongues. Um, I don't do that, but, but people think that um, of some. Quit a good-paying job to pursue mission work in another country. Like, we would hold this up as, like, awesome. Like, you quit a good-paying job and go serve Christ somewhere? Awesome. But people say, that's way too far. Way too far. Wear special clothes or head coverings for religious observance. Adhere to special dietary restrictions for religious reasons. Here's one we've probably most of us have done at some point. Fast or refrain from food for a period of time. And here's one of the bedrocks of our sexual teaching is wait until marriage to have sex. Way too far. Dangerously extreme. Category four. This is the lowest category. This is like the small six to 19%. This is it. Uh, read the Koran silently in a public place. Regularly donate money to a religious community. Tithing. Oh my goodness, right? I'm glad you took the offering earlier, you know. Um, didn't want to discourage you from that, right? Abstain from alcohol or tobacco for religious reasons. I guess health reasons wouldn't be enough, but religious reasons, right? Uh, read the Bible silently in a public place. Guilty. I've done that. Attend church, synagogue, or temple on a weekly basis. And you're all guilty. You're all guilty. Um, now listen. I, I just showed you that for only one, one reason, really. Some of those things I would disagree with on those lists, like violence in the name of your religion, absolutely wrong. It's not okay. But a lot of that stuff, some of, some of that stuff, I should say, it's kind of like, this is what we do. These are our, some of our moral teachings, fasting, abstinence, you know. These are the things that we promote. And they're being viewed as, you're way too crazy with this whole thing. And the question is, are you willing to be labeled as the crazy person? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do I have the First Corinthians verse? Did I, did I give you that, Jim? Hopefully, First Corinthians one eighteen. Here we go. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. You're an idiot. Why would you do this stuff? But to those of us who are being saved, we see it as the power of God. The power. Of God, it changes us. It transforms us. It's amazing. Can you live with that? Now, I am not recommending that we do foolish things just to do them. I, I think there's some crazy things Christians can do that we shouldn't do, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let's keep reading in our text, though. Let's see. Where did I leave off? Uh, I think we're in verse 25. Paul says. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. 
What I am saying, that, that's a good claim, right? I'm not crazy. Not crazy. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it's not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul answered, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who listen to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man's done nothing. He deserves death and imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay. What is going on here? <clears throat> so people think you're crazy. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Number two, final point, number two, we, we proclaim that our faith is true and reasonable. These are the words Paul used. I'm not insane. Now he's got to prove that he's not insane. And he says, everything I've told you is true and and reasonable. Now this is interesting. I mean, now check out how he says it because it's because it's kind of cool. He says, verse twenty six, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. It's kind of like Paul is saying that testimony I just shared about Moses and the prophets and Jesus had to die and, and rise from the dead, and we already we believe in the resurrection of the dead. I know it sounds crazy to you, Festus, but King Agrippa is is a Jew. Like, he gets this. He knows the prophets. So, so there's a sense where Paul is saying, I'm kind of just talking shop here, you know? You, you ever been with somebody where, they, um, where, where, where like they're, they're talking another language? They're talking about their job and they're using phrases and terminology. You have no clue what it means. Like, you cannot enter into that world, but they know exactly, all you computer people, you drive me crazy, you know? You, got, you talk about the... I, I shouldn't even try to say the words because I'm going to sound stupid, so I'm not going to. You know, th- th- there's whole other worlds that people live in and work in and have terminology for, and Paul is saying, when I'm talking to Agrippa, I'm just using our language, you know, the Jewish language. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just speaking to him like an, a fellow Jew and says, you know the prophets, you know Moses, you know the Messiah is going to come, and you know Isaiah says the Messiah has got to suffer. Like, you get it. I'm just, I'm just talking shop here. You know, one time, actually, this just reminded me. Uh, I was interning in youth ministry when I was in college over the summer. And, uh, and, 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 and the, I was at an internship where they were looking for a youth pastor, and they were hiring a youth pastor, and they brought the guy in, and I was part of, like, the um, meet the youth group, you know, and ask questions. You can submit questions for the youth pastor candidate, you know. So I'm sitting there, and I was interning, and... Uh, and so I, I was thinking, what question am I going to ask? You know, so I'm writing my question down, you know. And I submitted it, and, and I'm sitting there in anticipation of my question. You know, I'm waiting. And he, he's reading off all these questions the students submitted, you know. What do you think about dating? You know, what do you think about Jesus? What, you know, all these questions. And then, then, then he reads, what is your perspective on progressive dispensationalism? And I was like, yes, he read it. He picked my question. Progressive dispensationalism. What do you think? Um, and uh, he knew what it was, and, and, and he actually said what he thought, you know, and I was like, this is good, you know, and it was like this really great moment where I'm like, only two people in the room know what that is, you know, it's me and you, and we're talking, you know, I don't know, 
And I know all of you insider language people feel the same way. When you're talking shop and you're like, nobody knows what we're saying. It's like a foreign language, huh? You know, I know, I know. So um, Paul says, I'm talking in a way that people don't get. But, but, okay, let's go beyond that a little bit. My faith is true and reasonable. In other words, it, it's based on the truth. Jesus really did appear to me. Jesus really died on the cross and rose from the dead. That actually truthfully happened, and it was predicted. So this is what Paul says about being true and reasonable. Um, let's see. Verse 26, the king is familiar with these things. That would be Old Testament prophecy. The king knows his Bible. He knows Isaiah and the suffering servant that would come and be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He knows those passages. So he's familiar with prophecy. And then he also says, did you see this in in verse 26? It was not done in a corner. This hasn't escaped his notice. There was this guy that died on the cross. And the Jewish people, some of the Jewish people thought he was the Messiah. And Agrippa knew it. He'd heard about it. Like he'd heard the stories. And then he heard about how the tomb was empty and the Roman centurions fell over and the stone was removed. He heard the stories. It hadn't escaped his notice. He's a king in Israel. He knows the stories. He knows the rumors. He knows what's going on. And they're not rumors, Paul is saying. It's not a rumor you heard. It's the truth you heard. You heard a factual story. This is my point. This is really easy. When you're talking to somebody that thinks you're crazy, you have a perfect opportunity to demonstrate that our faith is true and rational. And, and, and you, can, you can take them to places like 1 John. This is not going to be on the screen, but I was thinking about this last night. How does 1 John start? Um, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Like, John is just saying, listen, listen, listen. I saw him, I touched him, he was there, he was alive, he was resurrected, and, and we all experienced it. You are talking about a faith that has an intellectual component to it. And there's evidence for it. And it's not blind faith. It's not blind faith. It's not, if you're anything, you know, I know I've preached this way before. I've preached enough sermons. Um, I've I've used the example before of uh, Indiana Jones in the the Last Crusade. Remember at the end end of that movie where he has to take the step of faith? Remember that? And he can't see. It looks like a chasm, you know, in front of him. And, and he's reading his, whatever he's reading, you know, and it's like, take the step of faith or the, the leap of faith or whatever. And then he takes that first step into the chasm and he realizes there's like this invisible bridge, you know. And then he, then he takes some dust and he throws it on there, which he should have done in the beginning. That's kind of silly, isn't it? You know, he should have just thrown the dirt first. But, but, you know, he had to take the step first and know that it was there. Take the plunge. And I don't know how I feel about examples like that anymore. Because our faith is grounded in reality, in truth, in history. The prophets said the Messiah would die, and they wrote hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. 
How did that happen? And then Jesus rose from the dead and people saw him. It wasn't like the tomb is empty. Where did he go? No one saw him ever again. He revealed himself to people and people wrote about it. And I trust that their reports are accurate. I trust the testimony. If you're, if you're seeing a judge in court and, and, and you're, you're being you know, convicted of a crime, if the judge says, I have no evidence for this crime, but I think you're guilty, so you're guilty, and rings the gavel, you'd be like, what? No evidence? Well, I'm taking it on faith that you did this crime. No. Where's the evidence? We have a thinking faith. We love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind and strength. We use our minds. And so we can demonstrate to people, this is not just crazy. I have reasons I believe what I believe. The prophet said it. Jesus accomplished it. And his followers recorded it. Do you believe what Peter said about Jesus? Do you believe what John said? I trust that this is accurate. Now, here's a couple objections, and I'm getting to the end here. Uh, there's, I, I, I foresee two objections to this whole line of thinking. I'd like to answer them if I could. Um, objection number one, if we can put that up. Um, objection number one goes like this. I think, I think Thomas is first, right? Is it Thomas? I have to look at my notes. It's coming. Oh, my objections fell out of the notes. I'll just tell you my objections, okay? I'll tell them to you. Uh, some people will say, what about the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1? 1? Let me read it. You maybe want to turn there. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Um, Nuts. That probably, oh, good, I got it up there. See, I got something right. Okay. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And with that definition of faith, people would say, isn't a faith a step in the dark? It's a leap. It's a leap. You know what else I want to show you? Can I show you? Um, I have two quotes from atheists. Can we show those, Jim? I'm really stretching your ability here. Richard Dawkins quote. Here we go. Uh, this is not a Christian guy writing this, okay? So just, just to be clear, he's a well-known atheist. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and to evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And it's like he's saying, you Christians are crazy. Uh, Here's the next one, Christopher Hitchens. Faith is a surrender of the mind. It's a surrender of reason. It's a surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other mammals. You've given up your reason. It's blind faith. It doesn't matter why you believe it, you just believe it. And sometimes we look at a Hebrews 11.1 1, and we say faith is assurance of what we hope, confidence of what we hope for, assurance of what we do not see. It's just that step, just like Indiana Jones took. Um, the Greek words in this verse are fascinating, but I don't have another half an hour to give you. Maybe I will one day. But I'm just going to put up the King James Version because I think the King James gets it right here. Now look at this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The Greek words translated substance and evidence, or assurance and confidence. Those words are flexible to include both of those meanings. It's kind of like this. If something has substance, I can have the assurance that it's real. And so that, that word has a range of meaning right there, that Greek word. 
And, and that word's not used many other places in the Bible. So we've got to figure out, like, what is the meaning of that? Now think about this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's almost as if when I put faith in Christ, I can almost taste it. I experience some of the substance even now. I don't get heaven now, but, but I get something so good right now, and by faith I've received it. There's a substance to it. Or look at this one. The evidence of things not seen. When there's evidence, I can have confidence, right? If you prove something to me, I know it's real. I took geometry. I did proofs. I hated it, but, you know, I know that this proof works. The evidence makes sense. I can have confidence because there's evidence. It's not an unthinking faith. It's a thinking faith. There's evidence of things not seen. And and, and just to prove my point a little bit more, if you look at the verses after verse 1, Hebrews 11.2 This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command. By faith we understand the universe was formed by God's command. Now yes, it's a step of faith to believe God formed the universe. But when I look out the window, I see the evidence, right? Do you see how those two things correlate? By faith I believe God created everything I can see. But the fact is I can see it and there's evidence that he did it. It's a thinking faith. It's a thinking faith. Um, I have one more. Oh, man, I could have spent a lot of time on this. But I got one more, one more objection. What about doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Paul doesn't call him doubting Agrippa. That wouldn't be right, would it, you know? But what about doubting Thomas? In John 20, 27 through 29, can we get the text up there? There he is. Then he said to Thomas, Put your, this is the resurrected Jesus, by the way. And Thomas says, I will not believe unless I can put my finger, you know, right in the, in the nail holes. He says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, like you all, and yet have believed. And some people take this verse and they say, well, Thomas, you big dummy, you should have believed. And Thomas says, I need evidence. You guys have seen him. I want to see him. And we put Thomas down. But how many of you have needed evidence before you took a step of faith? Like needed to know Christianity makes sense as a worldview, as a faith. How many of you needed to open the Bible for yourself and read it and see what it said and think about it? How many of you said at some point in your life, Jesus, if you're real, make yourself known to me. How many of you said that? You doubting Thomas. You needed to ask Jesus to make himself real to you. Why would you do that? This is the game we play, right? You know? Like, it's just, I just got to take, you know, take, take the step. I just got to take the step. And there is a sense of you're taking the step. I get it. I can't, I've never seen God, I've never seen Jesus. I got to take a step of faith. I get it but I have rational and true reasons I've taken this step. Because a man named Jesus died on the cross and his followers said they saw him three days later. When Paul speaks to the men of of Athens, remember that back in Acts? Oh, what chapter was that? Paul speaking to the Athenians and he said, God has given proof through the resurrection of the dead. And then they sneered at him, it says. They sneered at him when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. 
God has given proof. Proof. What are you going to do with the fact that Jesus' followers said they saw him? What are you going to do with that? Do you believe it or not? I'm basing my life and my afterlife on the reality of Jesus' resurrection and that I will be resurrected like him. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I have no proof of that as far as like I've never seen a person come back to life. I can't do that according to the scientific method. But these guys saw him. His disciples saw him and wrote about it. And they were changed by it. Last two applications, then we'll let you all go. What do I do with all this? What do I do with what you've just said? Number one, let's be patient with people who think we're crazy. Let's be patient with them. Because they're reading well-known atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens. They're reading these guys and they're like, those Christians, they have blind faith. They don't even know why they believe what they believe. They're totally intellectual. They have no reason for any of this. They're believing a legend. They're believing a rumor. They're believing a mass delusion. That's what they think. You have no reasons for why you believe what you believe. Let's be patient with them. You know? Um, And number two, let us demonstrate the trueness and rationality of our faith. Let's have conversations and tell people why you believe what you believe. I know at the end of the day, you've never seen Jesus. That's okay. Other people did, and they told you about him, and you believe it. God's word confirms it, and we stand on it. Need a good book? Um, If you need a good book for yourself or somebody else, I would recommend The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It will throw you into the deep end, but he's brilliant. I mean, the arguments in The Reason for God are brilliant. He's answering skeptics. That's what he's doing. Answering the skeptics, and he's imagining, he's seeing what their arguments are, and he's basically saying, no, Christians have thought this out. We have reasons why we believe this. It's it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Recommend it to you all. Um, Have a reason for your faith. Live it out. Demonstrate it. Um, Can I ask you to stand with me now? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? We've said a bunch of times today that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, and maybe today is the day when you've realized, I believe the testimony of this man named Jesus, this God-man. And today is the day I want to repent of my sins. Even as we took communion, we were reminded that repentance is part of this deal. Maybe today you realize your sins are not okay with God, but Jesus died to pay for them. If you If you need to pray something like this, I invite you to pray this today. Lord Jesus, today I recognize that I'm kind of giving up my excuses for not following you, for not believing in you. I admit that I'm a sinner and I've done many, many things that violate your commands. But I believe, Jesus, that you died in my place. You died to forgive me. You paid the price. It makes sense because somebody's got to pay for what I've done. I don't want to pay because Jesus, you paid. So please forgive me. I believe today you did rise from the dead and that one day I will too. I look forward to the day when I'm with you forever in paradise.
thank you for this moment. May it be a moment that changes my life. May this be a faith I hold to for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you keep your heads down and eyes closed, if you prayed that with me, would you make eye contact with me today? If this was your